we tell stories, we make sure that people remember this history and that it becomes a, a, a part of our very fabric of who we are. So if we don't have that, or if someone has taken that from us or told us that it's not valuable, that is, that's a really sad thing. Most students, including myself, I mean, we graduate with very little understanding of how slavery shaped this country and, and how its aftermath and also its various continuities, including what Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow, uh, continues to persist. Chapman University's Wilkinson College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences and Heritage Future present Engaging the World, Leading the Conversation on the Significance of Race, a 10-part podcast series exploring racial inequality, racial terrorism, and racial justice and reconciliation, while honoring the voices and stories of people of color. We take into account the complicated history of our country and humanity in general, while examining where we are today and looking at the challenges that lay ahead. Through art, storytelling, and education, we can all learn to be allies and engage the world to help evolve to a place of compassion and social equity. In this episode, we connect with Dr. Angelica Allen, Assistant Professor of Africana Studies and Co-Director of Africana Studies Minor Program, and Dr. Carissa Threet, the Associate Professor of History at Wilkinson College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences. Here are Dr. Allen and Dr. Threet. Teaching is something that really runs in my family. Uh, my father was an educator and, and, and so many others in my family as well. Um, and initially I was actually, as an undergrad, I wanted to be a visual artist, right? Um, still a visual artist, but I was an art major studying uh, visual art studies at a large, predominantly white institution um, in Texas. And at the time, it was a, a very isolating experience. Um, I was one of a few individuals in my department, the art department at the time, and I was the only Black student in my major at the time as well. And so I decided to go over to the Black Studies department. Um, it was a center at the time, not yet a department, but I decided to take a course called Intro to African-American Studies. And um, I'll never forget the, the very first black woman professor that I encountered at the time. And I was a junior at this, in, in college at this point um, and taking this class. And I'm sitting in this large lecture hall of over, I think a hundred students and in walks this uh, black woman and I just remembered following her with my eyes and, and seeing all the other black women in the room kind of do the same. Uh, and she was, you know, dressed to the nines, walked so confidently, made her way to the podium, did her first day of um, class introductory spiel. Hi, my name is Dr. So-and-so, I have a PhD from. And, and hearing those words, uh, something shifted inside of me. And I saw a possibility there and I decided that that's what I wanted to do and that's what I wanted to represent for other uh, young black women as well. And so that really altered, that class in particular, uh, really altered my trajectory. Um, I'm still an artist, I'm still pursuing the visual arts, but I'm an artist scholar now. Uh, but that is really one of the reasons why um, I pursued academia in the first place was, was just seeing the possibility there. 
I am a part of a community in the Philippines who are known as the Black Amerasian community. These are the children of African-American military men and um, Filipino women that are sort of left behind and living in the Philippines. And most Americans have no knowledge of the existence of such a community. And I, I wanted to make sure that Black history was sort of broadened to, to include these lesser known narratives and stories of people like myself who identified as African-American, uh, but immigrated into this country from various locales like the Philippines and in places where Black people are not imagined as sort of existing. And so I, I wanted to make sure to, to also assert these lesser known history related to the Black experience. Very much like Professor Allen, I come from a family of educators on um, the side of my African-American family. I too am biracial. Um, my mother is uh, Caucasian. My father's African-American. But I had a very different trajectory than uh, Dr. Allen. I really had no sense or even, quite frankly, belief that I could get a PhD. I knew that I wanted to teach. And my goal in going to college was to get uh, a degree in secondary education, particularly to teach history. I've always had a, a passion in history, an interest in history. I was always curious about stories, uh, stories about people and communities that uh, we, for whatever reason in the US educational system, hear little about. So that kind of stuck with me as I went away to college. I didn't have a faculty member of color, or, you know, an African-American professor during my tenure um, at my institution. And so, um, you know, you're kind of left creating community among your, your fellow students and uh, other staff members on campus. Um, I did end up finishing my degree and then stayed on and, and um, through uh, you know a family, an extended family member, was encouraged to go on and get a master's degree in history. I finished the master's degree and as I was mostly finished with it, uh, someone said, well, why don't you just, just to, just to try, um, to have your options, apply for the PhD. You never know, you might get into a really great place um, and decide to go. But it's, at the time, I still didn't believe, mostly because of the community I grew up in. Like That's not what my experience was in terms of having, uh, being connected with people who got PhDs, who got these way advanced degrees, right? I did apply, got in, but what was kind of mainstay throughout my career, both undergraduate and then the master's and then the PhD was really my interest in telling stories about these communities. My own in particular, particularly African-Americans, but um, I also grew up in San Diego and I, I grew up in kind of a diverse community of both military families. I lived on the, uh, I grew up on the border. So I was particularly also very interested to tell the story of diverse minority communities, but also those who were connected to the military. You know, that, that kind of stuck with me in terms to find a path of, of, of figuring out what we don't know about uh, people and communities in this nation is vast uh, and how I could support and help broaden the story we know. That really was what has always driven me and my research. The subject of history is complicated. More than just dates and names, it is stories of the human condition from a specific time and place. But who gets to share the stories of those denied an education? 
How is history written about these marginalized groups when only wealthy, land-owning white men were allowed education for so long? And does that create an inherent bias? We use the book Never Caught, The Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave, Ona Judge, by Erica Armstrong Dunbar, as a reference to help answer these questions. Part of the challenges and, and also the beauty of a, a monograph like Never Caught by Erica Armstrong Dunbar is her ability to kind of weave together a story that's really difficult to tell because what we are really left with in trying to understand and really know the history of um, African Americans or people of African descent in the colonial period and even the early modern period uh, in the 19th century in the United States is really records that are very much uh, if, if we're talking about enslaved persons from plantation owners, deeds, birth records, uh, wills, daily inventories on plantations, but they not only really tell us the story, there might be a name, there might be a little notation about phenotypes or what they, you know, how, you know, in terms of how good they are in certain types of labor. Um, then you have to go to the, the personal diaries and letters of those uh, who are educated, whites most often, um, on the, in those spaces who are writing letters or writing in diaries, who are telling us about those who are in their community or circle. Um, but again, that you know, those are relative, those are kind of biased stories in some way, right? Um, so how do we know uh, about the lives of early African Americans in the United States? We kind of have to tell the story by looking at these type of records, but also things like like never caught advertisements for runaways. I should say on the flip side of it, we do also have there also has been since this nation was founded, uh, communities of free people of color we do have records from. They most often are church records or benevolent society records who were very much aware that they needed to keep their records and tell their stories, not just oral, but also written records. So we also have those. So I think it's a kind of combination of using those records, which in some cases can be very sparse, and all these other records to kind of uh, blend the two to, to try to tell the story of these folks' lives in this nation. I, I think a part of the challenge to in writing a text like Never Caught is, is the paucity in, in the archive, right? The paucity that exists within the archive. And as a scholar of African descent, you do have to use your imagination, right? And this is true for scholars of African descent because it requires the act of scholarly self-awareness when working within the archive of slavery, right? Because there's not as much written about. And so you turn to diaries or you turn to oral history narratives. Um, in, this, in this context, um, the one interview uh, was, uh, that was the archive. And so what do you use to fill in the archive afterward, right? So it does require that scholarly self-awareness in order to quote unquote, fill it in as well. And I would add also that it's a little bit of, um, you know, we let that wonderful PBS show, History Detectives. Those who are interested in history, they're really curious, or they're a little bit nosy about things. And so, uh, you know, using your imagination, but willing to just keep digging away at little bits of information, 
you have you got a little information here you have a little information here you put them together you get yet another piece of the puzzle as well um you know that's part of the the excitement i don't know how many times i get super excited about finding one piece of paper after spending days in the archive that all of a sudden tells tells me so much that i didn't know already that I'm always surprised this is one piece of paper, but oftentimes it's that one piece of paper, like the, the interview of um, Ona Judd um, that comes really late in her life. Between her interview and then her the runaway advertisement, the author here is able to tell, to try to weave together this story about what could possibly be happening in this woman's life. So, and you know, I think that um, being curious and being willing to follow the mystery, you know, picking away at the surface stuff. The other part of the, 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 the job of the scholar is to really um, be critical of the sources that they have. Um, how do you read these sources? How do you not just take them at face value, but really think about critical ways that you can think about analyzing those sources? You know, who is the author? Where is it published? Um, again, if we go back to the advertisement, you know, you know that this the, 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 the author of this advertisement is, is the Washington family and they're publishing it in newspapers specifically that are going to be read by others who are mindful of, uh, of, of on the lookout for, for runaway slaves. Um, so I think they're, you know, bias is always an important part of what the scholar does. How do you read sources, understanding that's, that, that they are biased there i mean we ourselves are we have we ourselves have some biases when we go into the archive when we um start working on uh, a story that we're telling from the material that we've spent years researching and collecting data for um so i think we, i am i think we have to keep that in mind as well african-americans history is as old as america itself and yet, in the majority of primary and secondary systems of education, their story is relegated to a chapter at most. So many American citizens have grown up without seeing themselves represented in the history of the country their family has been a part of for generation after generation. In terms of this question of who gets to tell the story, it's also the question of who gets to learn about these stories, right? Um, because I'm thinking about uh, my own um, education during high school, for example, because, um, you know, unlike other academic content, um, there is no consensus on public education curriculum, for example, surrounding the history of enslaved people, right, and people of African descent. Um, and I just remember my own history and being forced to learn from outdated textbooks, for example, which promote these very antiquated views, right? And as a result, most students, including myself, I mean, we graduate with very little understanding of how slavery shaped this country and, and how its aftermath and also its various continuities, including what Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow, uh, continues to persist, right? So um, the bias, uh, there is a bias uh, in terms of who's writing this, the, the history, but also who gets to learn about these histories, right? Um, it's, it's also largely based on this idea that um, the history of enslaved Black people is perceived as something that existed in the past and not as something that has very real manifestations and continuities in the present. And so as a result, many students sort of um, leave uh, 
you know, public education as not being properly taught about this history and its lasting um, and continuing impact today. Um, I think oftentimes this, these histories are often regula regulated to paragraphs, mm -hmm. to two or three names. Um, so it seems as though your history doesn't exist, that you don't exist, that you are uh, not really part of this nation. And that that does stick with people. I think that, you know, that shapes their, you know, we time and time again, uh, in terms of curriculum, um, teach founding fathers history. I don't have any problem with founding fathers history, but I strongly um, believe that founding fathers history needs to be broadened to tell the whole story of founding fathers history. Right. I mean, this Ona Judd book is, is a perfect example of it. What we don't know about the lives of the Washingtons is so much richer when we tell the story of those who were enslaved with them, under them, and near them. Because those people existed and they had a part to play in the national history that was happening at the time. I, I ended up to, I, I also like Angelica took my first black studies class in college. I think I was a junior or senior at the, at the time as well. Um, but I, you know, my textbook in the you know in the 80s late 80s and early 90s were classic for having just a paragraph mm -hmm. and it was just a and it, it, that paragraph was usually expanded to a little bit more in the specific month that it was designated for national celebration right so black history month we learned a little bit more but we learned about the you know the, the three important three or four important african americans martin luther king rosa parks um and a few others, but mainly those two, because really we, what they really wanted us to learn is, is that that 10 year period of, of African-American history from about 1955 to 1965 and, and no more, no less. I mean, we slavery was was mentioned, but again, quite briefly, you know, there, there are vast arguments about K through 12 curriculum and what we we teach our children. Um, even into the present day and the current political moment as well, and, and criticisms on, on on both sides about what we what we miss when we regulate the history of some people in this nation to a paragraph. I think the only thing I ever learned about Japanese Americans in this country was that one paragraph on Japanese internment. You know, same thing because I grew up three miles um, in Chula Vista, three miles from the border. I mean, I learned about Mexican American history really. Uh, around Cinco de Mayo, and there was really no, no more, no less. Um, and so, you know, not having a, a breadth of understanding of the people and the individual stories that make up this nation does this nation a disservice, in my opinion. And I think that for me, that's one of the reasons why I continue doing the work I do, not to belittle or badmouth or change our, our, the history that that makes up this great nation but to expand it, to complicate it, to understand that, that, that life is not uh, you know, a simple story, that life is a complicated story, uh, a beautiful story, but a complicated one. My household was sort of unusual in that my father did keep um, things like the autobiography of Malcolm X, for example, on the bookshelf and, and other uh, Black history uh, figures. And so I didn't, in that regard, I didn't have a single story of Black history because I had those examples in my bookshelf. And um, again, I also come from uh, a family of educators. 
But without that, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I would feel incredibly disconnected, especially as someone who immigrated into this country from a place like the Philippines. There, I was the only Black person in my family, and I really didn't understand or know anything about Black history until I immigrated into this country. And I was lucky enough to unite with my father, who was an educator and who was very adamant about teaching me Black history. And that, as a result, um, that's, um, you know, that definitely influences the path that I'm in right now, but I think I would be lost had it not been for that, had it not been for seeing those examples on the bookshelf. What are the dangers and damages of omission and underrepresentation of the histories of marginalized groups in America, especially when there are those who want to move on from what they consider our traumatizing past? I really true, truly believe that we as a nation can't live up to the amazing ideas and ideologies that the nation was premised on. Again, it's a premise. I mean, we, I think we continue to try to grow to, to live up to the words that these founding fathers have put together. But I think you can't get there without both an acknowledgement and also a reconciliation with your historic past. And I, I think that that's one of the things the US has a really hard time with. Uh, acknowledgement and reconciliation. Not just that, okay, slavery existed, it's done. No, why did it exist? How does it continue to shape our institutions, the lives of those who continue to live here, even if they have no direct connection to slavery? Um, and why is it important for us to keep reminding ourselves and understanding this history? Too often people are like, oh, well, that, that happened a while ago. That's, you know, it's, it's a dark, it's the dark past. Um, but by refusing to both acknowledge, acknowledge it and have an open conversation about it and about racism in general and the ways that racism continue to shape the lives of American citizens and the institutions in this nation, we can't move forward, right, beyond our current moment. You know, Germany is a really great example of, of um, kind of reconciliation and acknowledgement, the ways post-World War II, the nation itself really has talked frankly and openly about the rise of Nazism and uh, the extermination of Jews and others. I don't, our nation, I don't think our nation has gotten there yet. And I don't know if, if folks are willing to, to even go there. I think it's complicated, right? Because I think the knowledge of, of the past is, is what helps us to, to also act in the present and also plan in the future. Um, and I'm, for example, I'm, I'm thinking about um, how oral history and oral storytelling operates in various Black communities um, that sort of have these rich, very rich African origins but that were taken from us in this country, right? Um, and how those things um, are transferred from one generation to another um, in order to sustain um, traditions across the diaspora for centuries, right? And, um, and it's vital, it's vital uh, to, to the existence of, of these communities. And I'm also reminded of um, Chimamanda Adichie's uh, powerful powerful TED talk, the danger of a, a, a single story. She has a quote where she talks about this idea of power. Um, 
power affects not just the ability to tell the story of another person, but to make it the definitive story of that person, right? And so it's important. It's important that we, we tell these stories. And yes, it's, it's um, infinitely complicated. The kind of oral history aspect of this is really important. How do we continue those traditions? How do we continue? Why do we celebrate the 4th of July or Veterans Day? We tell stories. We make sure that people remember uh, this history and that it becomes a, a, a part of our very fabric of who we are. So if we don't have that, or if someone has taken that from us or told us that it's not valuable, that is, that's a really sad thing. I mean, I'm thinking about Native American children whose language was stripped from them. Not, not to mention their history and their culture, but you know, that, that, that the ability to, to even speak in their uh, native languages, to pass on those stories, to ensure that the next generation not only, it's not about celebration, it's about the intense need to have a connection to the past so that you feel that you are a whole person in the present and that you are then part of building that future. We are currently facing our own historic moment in so many ways. How will history look back at the challenging times we are living through? I uh, participated in a panel, a Chapman panel last week about the elections. And the question the moderator asked me was about activism and Black Lives Matter and how we can think about Black activism and protest in the present day. And my answer, of course, was to remind the audience that Black Lives Matter uh, certainly has new strategies, but uh, they are focused on some of the same issues that have been long-standing uh, concerns and criticisms of uh, many people, particularly the Black community. And uh, if we just take the 20th century, the 1900s, um, that they are a legacy of racial protests um, that has been ongoing since the colonial period, since African people of African descent arrived in this space that we call now the United States. So I would say if I, you know, I'm thinking about how we, how historians might write this history, um, I think it would be as part of larger conversations of the historic significance of race, of racial protest, of pandemics, of the ways in which um, the nation has dealt with crisis moments that are very much connected to economic depression, pandemics, war, and that in some cases ongoing racial tension. I think too often we think, especially in the wake of Obama, and this I said this also in this panel, that I think some people got very, you know, they got very comfortable with the idea that the country has entered into this kind of post-racial moment. And we are reminded in this moment that, that the nation continues to, or must continue to confront questions of inequalities and inequalities across the board whether it be economic inequalities, racial inequalities, health disparities, that that is part of the ongoing, ongoing issues that the nation faces, that we have certainly come very far, but that these are things that we need to continue to confront. And I, again, as a historian, clearly I brought it back to history. <laughs> 
That was really poignant. I'm not sure if I have too much to add, but I, I would think um, it would probably lead us to think about activism um, in a larger scale as something that has a global uh, reach and is also a part of a larger co conversation. Um, I'm thinking a lot about how inequalities and also how anti-Blackness operates globally, especially in relation to my research community, for example, the Black Amerasian community, right? They're hip to this uh, uh, movement of the Black Lives Matter, and they situate themselves in that movement. And we're talking about the Philippines, <laughs> right? This is not the United States. This is not the, the North America, but something to the extent of the Philippines. So it has a global reach. And I think that global awareness and that global understanding for a global solidarity is going to be important for us to talk about and to write about in the future. And because this this has, uh, I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement, I mean, it has a very real international understanding. It's not just something that's located here, right? It exists in other locales as well. As a historian, and in this particular moment as well, you know, recently there's been conversations about what we teach and how we teach it, and why teaching about minorities and uh, other stories um, is problematic, that's unpatriotic. And I, I would argue that it's the opposite, that by teaching these stories, we're not taking away from uh, the history of this nation, we're adding to it, we're broadening it, we're expanding it, we're um, telling the kind of uh, the, the more richer story of this nation. And so we're not taking, you know, we don't take away by adding the story of Oni Judd mm -hmm. to our understanding or our, our, our knowledge of uh, George Washington or the colonial period. We come to understand more about this nation and what drove it, what shaped it at the same time. If you'd like to continue the conversation, visit Wilkinson College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at chapman.edu slash Wilkinson. For more socially conscious content, visit publicpodcasting.org or follow our channel on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you podcast.